So let's talk to him. Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you that we're here. Now, with all of our needs in tow, with all of our, our question, our struggles, our triumphs, our anticipations, thank you that we're here now, not just in a church service, but in our journeys and our stories, some of which are unraveling, some of which are just gaining momentum, some of which seem stagnant. We're all over the map. But what we can have in common is not only being in the presence of the almighty God of glory, but we can also be honest about who you are and who we are in your presence that produces that contrition that Isaiah 57 is talking about, that, that humility. It's just honesty about our need for you to, to speak into our journey, to sustain us, to give us strength. So wherever we are in this auditorium or online, I ask that you would enable us to open our hearts up. I need to hear from you as much as my friends do. And I thank you that you will speak because we're acknowledging your word is truth, because your spirit is here. Because you're asking us, we're asking you not to speak and to, to enhance our religiosity. We're asking you to speak to authenticate a little bit more deeply our humanity to the glory of God as we walk together as a community of your people called Northland. So Holy Spirit speak, word of God speak. I pray this in the name that is above every name. Amen, amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Really good to see you guys here and online. So it's time for True Confessions. How many of you still have Christmas decorations up? I like it. You know what? There's that country song that says, leave those Christmas lights on all year long. And uh, go ahead. It pays off next November because then you don't have to <laughs> redecorate. All right. How many of you have some unopened Christmas presents? Do you have an un any unopened? Get to it. You got to open those things. Anybody here do a white elephant gift exchange over Christmas? I love those. I mean, you, it's just, I'm a sucker for white elephant gifts. Some of you think, what is that? Well, it's where everybody brings a gift wrapped up and it's a gift they don't want. <laughs> Could be socks that don't match or some gift somebody gave that Uncle Charlie gave to them that, and Uncle Charlie, if you're here, I'm really sorry to reveal this, but that gift that Uncle Charlie gave you don't want. And everybody exchanges those really to get rid of them. What I love about white elephant gift exchanges is sometimes you'll get people coming to your office party or staff or team or whatever, they don't know and they bring a really nice gift. And so they bring a nice gift and they go home with Uncle Charlie's discarded socks or whatever. It is. I was, we were doing a white elephant gift exchange several years ago. This is not, not at North. It was with a team that I was leading and had the executive team at our home and everybody brought their white elephant uh, gift. And the, the deal is you put all the wrapped gifts in the middle, figure out who's going to start and then you go clockwise or counterclockwise and that person starts, opens up the gift and the next person has the option of either t picking a wrapped gift from the middle or choosing from any gifts that have already been opened. 
and you have house rules that say, okay, you can only, one gift can only be stolen, say, three times, but that's part of it. Pick a gift or steal one from that's already been opened. It's great for, for community and relationships and bitterness to start get going, people stealing gifts from each other. Well, uh, we were going around and a gift that was opened was a chocolate Easter bunny. Don't ask, I'm not sure, but it's about a foot and a half high, at least. Now, the director of our counseling services was there, and he had a huge addiction to chocolate. Director, did I say he was the director of our counseling services? But he looked at that and he began to visibly react in a visceral way. He wanted that. So he, when it came his turn, he went over and he stole that chocolate Easter bunny. Then somebody else took it from him. He plummeted into depression. Did I mention he was head of our counseling services? But then it came around, he was able to steal it again. This happened a couple of times. Then he got the Easter bunny and it was closed. I think it was three times it had been stolen. So he had it. He was so happy. And we were done, everybody had some great laughs about different gifts, and then we broke up for a little bit. People went into the kitchen to get some coffee and dessert, and some people stayed in the, in, in the living room. Uh, Jim, the, the counseling director, he, he had left the room, but a few of us were sitting around and started laughing about the chocolate Easter bunny and how happy Jim was. And Now, you don't typically confess what gift you brought. Usually you want to keep that secret. But on this occasion, one of the guys, he was the spouse of one of our executive team members, and he owned several drugstores in the city. And he said, okay, I'll fess up. I brought the Easter bunny. He said, but what I can't believe is nobody read the box. So what are you talking about? So they handed me the box. And down at the bottom, in all capital letters, was for display purposes only. I said, what's that mean? He said, it's not chocolate, it's wax. And then being the compassionate person that I am, uh, it dawned on me, Jim doesn't know that. So he comes back in, chocolate mousse is part of the dessert, and of course Jim's happy about that. I said, Jim, all right, I got, got to tell you something. I know how much you love chocolate, but I'm shocked that you haven't opened up the bunny to, to take a, a bite. He says, I'm not going to do that because then I'll have to share it with all of you. Did I mention he's head of our counseling uh, center? And I said, I tell you what, we'll all agree. We will not, we want you to enjoy it. It is yours. But if you want to take a bite to go with your chocolate mousse, you know, go right ahead. said, really? You'd do that for me? Sure, we would. And he opened up the box. He peeled back that ear. I didn't realize his mouth was that big. I mean, he put half that ear. And did you ever see the movie Jaws where the shark's eyes go back in the back of its head when it takes a big bite? That's what he looked like. He took a bite and he was about three or four chomps in when he stopped. And everybody else knew what was going on and it took weeks for us to clean the carpet up from this chocolate covered wax or whatever, or chocolate colored wax that was on the floor. The disappointment that was on his face. And he was plummeted back into depression. And did I mention he was head of our counseling? 
It's so disappointing to bite into something that you thought was one thing and it turns out to be another. Have you ever had that happen regarding church? Thinking it was gonna be one thing and it turns out to be something not nearly as powerful as you were anticipating, as fulfilling, as energizing. The inauthenticity of church is what disappoints most of us at one point or another in our journey. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that in just a minute, but first let me back up and describe where we are, especially if you're new with us. Maybe you just started coming at Christmas Eve. It's great to have you here. So we're gonna pick back up a journey that we started in the fall, a journey with the Philippians. Philippians is one of the books of the New Testament, and it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Philippi was a, a, a significant Roman colony. It was like a mini Rome in the northeastern corner of what we now know is Greece. Very influential place. Paul had started a church there and actually was imprisoned with his buddies as they were trying to get the church started. He was beaten. He encountered a lot, but developed a close relationship with them. He went on to start a number of other churches, and then later in his, his ministry journey, he was raising funds for the Jerusalem church. It was in some financial hardship. Uh, the Philippians helped with that. He went down to Jerusalem to deliver that gift. The Jews in Jerusalem who hated Paul because he was a turncoat. He was one of them persecuting Christians. Then he had become a Christian and an ambassador for Christ, they threw him in jail. He was shipped up to one spot there right on the Mediterranean and then he appealed to Caesar and was shipped up to Rome, and still in prison, but awaiting an appeal for two years that really would determine if he would live or die. That's how serious it was. While he's chained to this Roman guard, he mentions four times in Philippians being in chains. It's probably house arrest, but 24 hours a day, he writes a letter. Here's the powerful thing. The letter is about joy. There's a lot about a lot of things, but it all comes to this. Over and over, he mentions joy and rejoicing. Now, you'd expect a book in the Bible to be about joy, but the powerful reality is this is a book written about joy from anything that, quote, is, that is less than, quote, a joyful circumstance, we would think. But that's what the gospel does. Happiness is circumstances being all right. Joy is transcendent, it's above, it's beyond circumstances. And Paul is demonstrating that with amazing credibility, writing this, not from being on vacation or two people on vacation, but writing from being in chains with the imminent sentence of death on him. A lot of people misunderstand Christianity thinking, it's just another talisman. It's another good luck charm. And if I can figure out this Christian thing, if I can get the prayers just right and uh, quiet times, whatever, then my problems will go away. That's not the gospel. Christ's first advent is when he came 2,000 years ago to, to fulfill this promise of cosmic renewal, making all things new. Principle are his images, human beings. We're waiting right now for the second advent. We're still in the in-between time though, therefore we're still in a fallen world, therefore we do experience difficulty even when we're followers of Jesus. In John 16, Jesus says very plainly, he says, these things I've spoken to you so that you might have shalom, peace. In this world, you will have trouble. That's not 
that, that, that statement never goes away saying, unless you really figure out how to have a good quiet time. In this world, you will have trouble. The gospel is not immu immunity from trouble. The gospel is being able to take heart because he has overcome the world. And so we can engage with the fallenness differently. We engage with the fallenness with a sense of joy. Joy is not necessarily a smile. Joy can be with tears streaming down my face, but it's a deep sense that, that this almighty God that we were singing about is enough. Now, overarching outline of Philippians to give you some points of reference, so many factors, so many ways that you can organize it, but uh, chapters one, two, three, and four, let me just give you the, the overview. What enables me to experience joy in the midst of financial or relational or medical or uh, vocational or uh, educational hardship is engaging with the gospel. Chapter one talks about gospel priority that enables joy. Living a life that revolves around Jesus, not just expecting him to revolve around me and all my agenda, but me revolving around him. Chapter two, generally speaking, is about gospel community is what brings us joy. Living lives that reflect Jesus. I reflect him to you, you reflect him to me. Chapter three is about, gos is about gospel intimacy, generally speaking. Relating with Jesus. Knowing him above all else, realizing that's the essence of eternal life. Chapter four, you could say, generally speaking, is about gospel sufficiency. Relying on Christ. What we're going to do today is pick up where we left off right before December. We're going to be, we're in the end of chapter two. So look at chapter two there. Chapter two is about this gospel community living lives that reflect Jesus. If you've got your Bible, turn to Philippians 2. If not, you can look on the screen. Here are a couple of highlights from the chapter before we get to today's text. Verse 3, 4, and 5, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, a lot of times we think, hey, if I get my way, that's, what gonna, that's gonna bring me joy. Paul says that's not gonna bring you joy. That might bring you some, some happiness at great cost. But joy comes from the opposite posture of wanting to give. He says, value, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe how Christ gave his life in that phenomenal kenosis hymn, that emptying hymn, one of the earliest hymns of the early church that we went through. Now, last time, Thanksgiving weekend, as we, right when we stopped this series for Advent, verse 15, 16 of Philippians 2 was part of what we looked at. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now, get this, Paul's talking about the more you understand this, the more you get this, the more of a contrast there will be between, between you as Christ's people and the surrounding culture. In fact, You'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So there's been the exhortation, the encouragement. Now he takes this end of what we've done, defined as chapter two with some personal comments about two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So he's been talking about relationships, relationships that bring joy, reflecting Jesus to one another. And now he's going to get real practical, and we're going to see it demonstrated. And going back to our Easter bunny, what we're about to read um, 
is saturated with authenticity. And it's around these two guys. Timothy was a very close friend, traveled with him, ministered with him. It was a protege of him, partner in ministry. They had done and experienced a lot together. Epaphroditus is the guy that had brought Paul the gift from the Philippian church. Epaphroditus had been sent by the Philippians. When they heard that Paul was in prison, they sent Epaphroditus and the distance between Philippi and Rome was about 800 miles, more or less between New York and Chicago. He traveled on foot because when you were in prison in those days in chains, if you didn't have help from the outside, you would die in prison. So they, they sent a monetary gift to Paul through Epaphroditus. He knew Epaphroditus, but not as well as he knew Timothy. Man, that's the way it is in a body of believers. There's some of those people that we're really close to, some that we're not so close to, but both of those kinds of relationship present the opportunity for us to experience authentic community. Not wax, but the real deal. So just listen to Paul, read along as he describes these two guys. Verse 19, Philippians 2, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. So he shifts now talking about Epaphroditus. My brother, coworker, fellow soldier who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Epaphroditus almost died on the, the journey, he got very sick. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. What a phenomenal statement. These are real deal. These relationships are real. If a group of Christ followers can get chapter two, not only can it transform our whole notion of church, but it transforms as a result our impact in our communities and in our culture. So let's go back through this text and we'll look at several principles that come out in here, but just mulling over this text over and over, there's several things that hop out that are invitations to authenticity. Choices that need to be made by a small group, a ministry team, a church, if we're going to experience the real deal and not disappointing wax when we bite into this thing called church. There are plenty more, but this is a good starting point. And it's a matter of choices. It's a choice that you've got to make and that you've got to make that you've got to make that I've got to make on a daily basis regarding who we are as a church. Guys, this is an exciting season for Northland. It's incredibly critical. There's a world that's hungry 
for what God can do in us and through us in partnership with many other churches. Not just here in Central Florida, but around the world. This is not just, hey, punch the card, let's do a little church thing. There's more writing on these next few minutes than I think you and I would ever dare dream. The writer of Hebrews talks about that great cloud of witnesses has gone before us, and I guarantee you the Philippian church is part of that and saying, with the Northlandian church, please get this. Moving from wax to the real deal. Let's talk about these four choices. If we're going to move from wax to the real deal, if we're going to experience the joy of authentic community, involve all of us on an individual basis, which then results in us corporately making this choice, choosing love over sentimentality. Love over sentimentality. A lot of religious places, a lot of churches, people go for a good, a good feeling. I just feel like, okay, I'm, I'm better now that I went to church. We're... What Paul is describing is a love that is not just a good feeling. There's deep affection between these people, but it is not superficial. It's not just this sentimental stuff. It, it, it goes deep. Go back to the text. Look at verse 20. He says, I have no one else like him, like Timothy, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. That's love. Philippians 2.25, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. See, the Philippian church didn't just have some superficial sentimentality towards Paul and say, oh man, we're just sorry to hear he's in prison. Hope he's okay. They, they did something about it, which is what agape, uh, uniquely Christian love does. It's, it's something that acts lovingly and is demonstrated, not just in affection, but in action. Uh, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. The love comes through there. That's in verse 26. Go down to verse 30. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. He risked his life. There's nothing sentimental, superficial about that. It's a real deal. That's not wax. That's deep, dark chocolate. You see the love that's going around in this community? Take a, take a look at all the different love uh, relationships in this passage over and over. First, we see that Christ loved the Philippians. You go through this. How much did Jesus love the Philippians? Earlier in chapter, he loved the Philippians enough to give his life. That's not just sentimentality. Uh, Paul loved the Philippians. How much? That he, he endured beatings and imprisonment to get a church started so that they can drink in the gospel. The Philippians loved Paul. How much? That they didn't just say, hey, too bad, Paul's in prison. They got together some funds and supported him financially through his ministry, but then once he was in prison, they sent Epaphroditus to him. Epaphroditus loved Paul. How much? That he went 800 miles on foot to say, we care for you. The Philippians loved Epaphroditus. So much what? They were deeply concerned when they heard that he had almost died. I mean, it distressed them. Epaphroditus loved the Philippians because he was distressed, they were distressed. 
Paul loved Epaphroditus. You see, man, love's flying all over the place, but it's not a superficial, sentimental thing. It's something that goes deep. In fact, look at the name Epaphroditus there on the last line. It's a Greek name. Who do you think his parents named him after? Take off the E and the P at the beginning of his name. Aphroditus. The Greek goddess Aphrodite. The goddess of what? Love. And Paul's saying Epaphroditus has taken the love of Aphrodite further than his parents probably ever dreamed. He says, Timothy showed genuine concern. There's an authenticity coming out in this text. Romans chapter 12, verse, verse 9 says, love must be what? Say it out loud. Sincere. A lot of church communities, religious communities, love isn't sincere. It's a sentimental thing. It's, hey, good to see you. Don't ask me any big questions. I got to go eat brunch. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another, be devoted to one another in love. In other words, it'll be visible. Your love for one another will, will show. Jesus says in John 13, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Not sentimentality. I'm not saying there's no affection. Yeah, there's affection. But you know what? Paul had deeper affection guaranteed for Timothy than he did Epaphroditus. Affection varies according to the depth of relationship and intimacy with someone, but that love comes through. Keep going in that be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, but go back to that love must be sincere. The Greek word there for sincere is a Greek word, the root of which is hypocrite. That's where we get a hypocrite from. Back then, that wasn't a negative thing. It just referred to an actor in the, in the theater. People, somebody that was pretending they were something that they, they were, were not. But even look at the English form of the word sincere. You know where that comes from? Back in the days of the Romans and the Greeks doing trade with one another, the Greeks were known for their beauty, for their art, for their sculpture. And you would have these sculptures, these Greek sculptors uh, who would fashion these statues out of marble. You've seen them in, in, in museums and so forth. And they would ship them over to Rome at a pretty penny. And wealthy people in Rome would buy them and put them in their gardens. And everybody's happy. But you know, when a sculptor is working on a statue, starts with a block of marble, and you're kind of chipping away here and there, every now and then a sculptor has an oops. That's not a good thing when a sculptor has an oops, because that means a chip has happened where there wasn't supposed to be a chip, a gash. And so what they would do is, uh, you don't want to just start over. This is a block of marble. You can't afford to start over. So you uh, look at all of those fragments of marble on the ground. They would take some of those up, put them in this big bowl, and crush them up along with a, a waxy substance. And after it was at the right constituency, then they would put it back and smooth it over that oops point, that, that, that flaw, and ship it over and sell it to the Roman senator. Everybody's fine till the Roman senator notices after the statue has been sitting out in his garden underneath the Mediterranean sun for a while and that wax begins to melt, you've got a very unhappy Roman senator who paid full price for the sculpture and 
but it has wax in it. So they made this, this uh, trade agreement that the sculptors would need to certify that the statue was without wax. Without in Latin is sin, wax is Sarah. Sin, Sarah, is, literally means without wax. Your love must be sincere. My love must, for you needs to be sincere, without wax. Let's experience the chocolate together. That's not the, the, not the disappointment of wax and then spit it out and say, I'm done with church. We have an amazing tech team. I don't know if you noticed Christmas Eve service is kind of a big deal here at Northland. And our tech team, the video guys, the sound guys, the lighting team, everybody. And over and over, I was thanking them and, and affirming them. But I talked to a couple of them. A family in the church here said, we just appreciate you guys so much. And they, they gave them a party. Now, I was being sincere with my statements that I, of gratitude, but throwing them a party, that goes to the next level of authenticity to say, we want to be sincere in our love for you. Guys, let's figure that out. For our love to be sincere, not we just come together for warm fuzzies, but we come together for demonstrations of love to each other and to the world. Here's the second choice that an authentic community makes together, and it's, cho it's choosing, it comes out of this passage, it's choosing partnership over membership. When church people think about membership, think about church, a lot of people think in terms of membership. Hey, are you a member? Now, different places have different terminology, and it might not be membership. It's just, hey, I'm an attender. I'm, this is my church. I, I, maybe I not, might not officially be a member, but I'm, I'm sort of a member because that's my church. That's where I go to get what I, I want and what I need from a, a, a spiritual standpoint. What does that start to do? It, start, it sets up a passivity that I'm here for, for, for what you're going to give me. I'm going to watch, and I'm going to go to church according to who has the best membership privileges. American Express, I should have contacted them and gotten sponsorship for this weekend. What, what's their slogan? What's one of the slogans of American Express? Membership, membership has its privileges. That's big time church lingo right there. It is. You know what? Membership of that church has its privileges. I mean, you know what they do for, for me? And they stopped doing that for me over there. And so I went somewhere else. So they'd do it for me. Very different concept of church in this passage. Go back to verse, look at verse 21. He says, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. Huh. Is a filter that I need to use perhaps regarding church is saying what's paramount here is not my interest first and foremost, but those of Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the spectator sport of the gospel. No, in the work of the gospel. There is something to be done. That's why he's called us together as his people. Look at verse 30, because Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ. Really? Yeah. 
It's not a, hey, I want to just go and have something done for me and just sit back. It's accomplishing something together. Remember chapter 1, verse 4 of Philippians? Paul says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And when I was reading through this over and over, I thought back to what Paul said in chapter. He's talking about, hey, guys, the power of us is not membership in which we're all kind of staring at some people up front wanting them to fulfill all of our preferences. The privilege that we have is to be able to be partners together, to accomplish together what we could not accomplish individually. Last week, our launch of this year, the, 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 the four-year was filled with connections opportunities, over a hundred of them. Why? Not just to fulfill preferences, but to give you and me opportunities for partnership according to the way that you've been wired and you've been wired and I've been wired. Church is not just about staring at the back of somebody's head for an hour and a half on a Sunday when there's no NFL playoff happening that I'm interested in. Now, I, there is a time I've had them in my journey where, you know what, I just need to, maybe it's because of weariness or crisis or woundedness or whatever, where a person goes and says, I just need to sit. I just want to slip in church and slip out, and that's all I can do right now. We want you to know you're welcome here. But that is the exception, not the rule. That's temporary. That's not long-term. That will not, over the long haul, enable me to be who Christ has called me to be. What, what that will mean is me saying, I've got a ministry here. You will never hear me use the phrase full-time ministry regarding pastors and missionaries. I might be a vocational minister, but every one of us has a full-time ministry. And there's so many, we're all the time being ambassadors for Jesus. So last week, if you rushed through for you saying, hey, I don't want to do any of that, I'm just coming for what I receive, that's that membership superseding partnership. If that's been a long-term posture, I just want to encourage you. We need to make, we need to do a better job making it easy for you to get connected. Easy not in the sense of requiring nothing from you, but being able to get plugged in. Help us help you on that. If you didn't slow down on your way out last week, slow down this week. So God has wired you. He's called you. There's experiences, there's history in every one of us that can contribute to the greater good for the glory of Jesus in this community and around the world. If we will make the choice on a daily basis of partnership over membership, and that coincides with choosing love over sentimentality, let me give you a third choice for us to move into this realm of authenticity as a community, not just playing church. And it's this, choosing encouragement. When I go back to this text, I see a group of people that were choosing encouragement over flattery. Now right there, all of a sudden, you, some of you are seeing a church experience, sentimentality, warm fuzzies, membership, passive privilege, flattery. Hey, love your jacket. Can you believe he would wear that to church? I can't believe he would do such a thing. Churches are known for that. No flattery, authenticity, to speak life into one another. Go back to the text, look at verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that, also, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Huh. 
How do you think they felt when Paul said that? He's going to be cheered? He's going to be uplifted hearing about us? Verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father. How do you think Timothy felt when he read that? Huh. He served with me in the work of the gospel. Verse 26, for he longs for all of you. This is Epaphroditus. How do you think the Philippians felt hearing that about him? And it's distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. And statement after statement in Philippians reveals this, an encouragement, speaking life. You know, Mark Twain, I think it was, that said, I could go two months on one good compliment. There's something about that. But this is more than just a compliment. This is encouraging, giving courage. I've got some people in my life that encourage me. They, and they're saying, you, you, well done on something. I loved this. There's something about this. not an ego thing. It just is, is uh, it's affirming. And, but the first question, some of you are thinking, I, I don't know that anybody has said anything encouraging to me recently. That's a very important question. It's not the most important question. You know what the most important question is? When was the last time you said something encouraging to someone? Maybe somebody going through some real difficult stuff. Um, We've got some partners, ministry partners in Haiti. This has been a very tough week for them. It was the anniversary of the, of, of the earthquake. Everybody in that country lost someone. Well, and the, but the day before, and I am in a really awkward spot because if I don't say anything about our president's disparaging remarks about Haiti, I'm going to be in trouble with somebody. If I do say something, I'm going to be in trouble with you. And uh, there's a polarizing aspect to it. So do I say something, do I not say something, or do I go online looking for flights to New Zealand, and maybe that would be the easier thing to approach this this morning. But uh, bottom line, the people in Haiti, as and well as other parts, it was a deeply discouraging for them. And a friend of mine has done ministry in Haiti for uh, a long time. And, you know, Trump's remarks, and again, he's done great things, he's not, he's done bad things. Everybody has their opinion. I want to get past that. You want want to be mad at me for either reason? Yeah, I'll just sit in the middle and you guys can both shoot at me, but that's dangerous because if you miss me, then you're going to have people on their side. But uh, this is what I want you to hear. So I was talking to Jimmy yesterday on the phone. He wrote the, they do a lot of ministry in Haiti with church leaders there. He wrote them an email on the anniversary of the earthquake. And it was in, but it was in direct response to the president's remarks the day before. And this is what he said to them. He first apologized for those remarks. And then he said this, while I hope you know this, this is my friend Jimmy, who's head of an organization called Pastor Serve. They do a lot of ministry there. He's writing to the church leaders there. He says, while I hope you know this, we at Pastor Serve have the utmost respect for you, your families, your ministry, and your country. 
We believe with all our hearts that we are peers in ministry. We affirm that we are not better than you, not smarter than you, not harder working than you, and not more spiritually in touch with Jesus than you. In fact, in most cases, the opposite is true. I've watched Haitians work harder than I've ever worked, trust Jesus more than I trust Jesus, and display wisdom that I can only pray for. So many times you have modeled for me what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. We love you, we are for you, we stand with you, and we will advance the gospel alongside you. I look forward to seeing you in two weeks. That's encouragement, absolutely. So what I encourage you to do, and encourage, what's that mean? It means to encourage. Give courage to somebody that's going through some difficulty. At the Boston Marathon this spring, it was really hot. I don't know if you saw, somebody sent me an article about the number of people that helped other runners finish the race. There's some photographs we can scroll, scroll through. And over and over, that's really demonstrating what Paul's talking about encouraging. Hey, I want to give you courage. You can do this. This week I had somebody tell me that. You can do this. And it just, it spoke deeply to me. I was uh, in Austria at early November speaking at a, lecturing at a Bible institute. And during the week, the, the students had a, a, a race that they all were required as part of the student body to participate in. It could either be, a, you could walk or run. 5K, 10K, 15K, or 21K and they were raising money for an orphanage. So the next day, I used one of the lectures to just dialogue with them, what'd you learn doing a race together? And over and over, and, I, and when the uh, Boston Marathon happened, I saw those, those images, I thought of what the students did. I in fact took some photos and flipped my flip charts because I wrote down different things they said. About, and over and over, it was about the encouragement of doing the race together. Talking about, hey, God works through others in our lives. To have companions is so important on the race. Enduring, pressing on can't happen without each other. We need to push each other to finish. The support and encouragement is invaluable. People who've gone before us are important to lead us and call us to the finish line. Somebody mentoring me, I'd never run a race before, and somebody teaching me for needing to follow the right people, learning from more experienced people, journeying together, relishing each other's successes, strengthening each other, never walking alone. We can't stop the hardship, the opposition that happens in one another's lives, but what we can do is change how we approach that by encouraging each other along the way. Here's fourth. What's this authentic community look like? It means choosing love over sentimentality. It means choosing partnership over membership. It means choosing encouragement over flattery. But it also means choosing calling over convenience. Now that right-hand column right there really gives us an idea of, of a religious churchy kind of experience that's wax and not chocolate. Sentimentality, passive membership, some flattery when you see each other being nice, but not really, and then convenience. When it's convenient, uh, I'll come to church. There's no convenience in this passage. Go back, verse 21, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. By the way, that Greek word proved is translated in English character in Romans, in Romans chapter 5. Timothy has proved himself. His character is, has been shown because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. 
Verse 30, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. They, were, they went through difficult stuff. Can you imagine religious churchy people going through difficulty? No, we just bail. We go somewhere else. We do something else. Why did they go through the difficulties? Listen to what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Why did he keep going experiencing all of that difficulty? He reveals it in chapter 3. We're going to look at that in just a couple of weeks. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is what I want you and me to see the dance of, to experience this dance of the alarm ringing and waking up to say, what has Jesus taken hold of me for today? No, none of this, hey, there's these full-time ministers, but not me. No, I got a full-time ministry. You do. If you're a follower of Jesus, every day is a day in which I need to take hold of that for which I've been taken hold of, using my gifts, my abilities. It's a sense of calling. Guys, Northam has a calling on it. That calling was not revoked after a rich season of three decades this past fall that we celebrated, that calling continues. And it continues in a multifaceted way. And what can happen in terms of the ignition of kingdom impact happening as a result of us saying we want to be men and women of love, men and women of partnership, men and women of encouragement, men and women of calling. I call this message the risk of community. Why did I do that? Because so often we think, if I do this, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm not going to receive nearly as much as I give. And that's not true. But it's scary to go down that path. It's scary to engage in, in community. What if, I, what if I get hurt? What if I get disappointed? Yes, yes, that, that, that will happen. You know, it's January. I know you appreciate me pointing that out. And a lot of you know, I'm a Colorado guy. So January, I'm so excited to be able to wear a wool jacket uh, in Florida. So it's one of the two times a year I can wear one. But January skiing time in my mind, and not water skiing, but snow skiing. And a lot of you think, why on earth would anybody want to put a couple of pieces of Teflon and endanger their lives like that down skiing down a mountain. If you've ever been skiing or you learn skiing and if you get some instruction, the, the key to skiing is risk taking. You said, no kidding, it's getting out there and uh, you know, the, the key to skiing well is taking a risk. You get a good instruction. Let's say the slope is going like this. And so I'm on the side of the slope with my skis. What's the, what do we want to do? We want to lean into this is safety over here. That's death. This is safety. But what we don't realize, and a good instructor will point this out, you lean into the mountain, it, it, it releases your skis so that you can't grip the snow and you're going to head down to, to death. Well, what's the answer? The, the answer is with your upper body leaning out over. I'm not leaning out. Again, death. No. Because when I lean that way and take the risk of leaning that way, my, 
instinctively, my lower body reacts. So when I go this way, my knees go towards the And what it does is it, it gives what skiers refer to as an edge. All of a sudden, there's control, ability to actually enjoy and not slide down the mountain to certain death, but to actually enjoy that. What we want to do when it comes to church is we want to lean in to superficial sentimentality. We want to lean into passive membership. What's in it for me? We want to lean into flattery just to be nice. We want to lean into a, a cadence paralyzing, a, a posture of convenience. And what Paul is demonstrating is saying, lean out. Go for the love. Go for the partnership. Go for the encouragement. Go for the calling, and let's see what God does. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have called us for such a time as this as a church. <laughs> what is at stake here? What is possible here? For us to be a community of your followers that builds on a rich history and foundation. Moving into next, next, this next season, thank you that we're here for such a time as this. Now enable us before we leave here to actually let your word trickle into our hearts deeply. Let those seeds go down and take root as we submit before you as, as our head. I pray this in the name of the one who calls us and who loves us and who encourages us. The one who calls us into partnership. Amen. Amen.